Well, as we launch into 2 Peter, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to the book of 2 Peter, or you can use your smartphone. Either way is fine. As we start our message tonight, uh, I have a video that I want to watch together from an NBC affiliate in Mesa, Arizona. So check out the video. This from Arizona, where one couple took the season of giving to the extreme this year. Ryan Cody has the story of a man and a couple who gave an incredible gift for Christmas. Doug Davison is spending Christmas night inside this van. Truthfully, it's as comfortable as he's been in a while. My engine blew in the car and I had no heat or nothing. You can't only hit rock bottom and that's uh, death and where I'm at. Doug and his dog, Swade, hang out at this Walgreens in Mesa almost every day. Not to ask customers for money, just because he doesn't have anywhere else to go. It don't bother me if I have a penny, if I have $10 million. As long as I'm, I mean, me and my dog, that's all that matter. Which really made an impression on one family in particular. It's easy to walk by and just hand someone five bucks and leave. But it's hard to stay there and take care of them. You know, so we want to be different. That would prove to be an understatement. They pay for a couple nights in the motel for me right before Christmas, or... Christmas Eve. A warm bed on a cold Christmas Eve, one of the nicest things anyone's done for Doug in a long time. But it gets better. The phone rang in his hotel room on Christmas morning. The same couple inviting him to breakfast at Waffle House. We went inside and ate and Dan asked me, can you drive? I'm like, yeah. He said, well, turn around. I turn around and look. He's like, don't you see him? like, see what? He's like, the van over there. I, I lost it. A red bow on the outside. And on the inside, everything. Uh, you, you, you think of it? Towels, socks, toys for suede, and a bed with blankets. I mean, it's hard enough out here. It's winter time. It's going to be raining. You want him to have at least a place that he can go to that's his own. It's a gift Willing. for us too because totally for we us. enjoyed more helping him with this than getting something else. Yeah, we're we're happy. We're content with what we got. This, this, this was made, a great gift for us. Our Christmas. Making his. That yeah. was great. Imagine for a moment what it would be like to be a man like Doug. Imagine not having a place to call home. Imagine not having that favorite pillow to lay your head on every night. Imagine living somewhere like Phoenix where you don't have the capacity to shower. Now, I know some of you know what that's like because you came to our camp out and you didn't shower for a weekend, but we weren't in Phoenix, Arizona. Imagine not being able to have a place to do laundry. Imagine being the person that everyone looks down on when they're walking into the store. Imagine what it would be like to live a life without the purpose that comes just from having a job. Imagine spending every day hanging out in the same Walgreens parking lot with your dog. And that's when the Kelly family comes along. And just the gift of a couple nights in a hotel right around Christmas, that would have been a huge gift, but they take it a step farther. A car, which became his home, transportation, a place to find at least a little bit of warmth in the desert in the middle of the winter, an incredible gift. It's videos like this that remind me that there probably are at least a couple decent people still in the world. But Doug received a gift that he never deserved, he didn't earn, and he never could repay. The gift that he received serves as a parable for our spiritual lives. 
The gift of grace that we can receive through Christ is something that we could never dream of repaying, something that we've never deserved, something that we did nothing to earn. Because the Bible describes us, before we know Christ, in a similar state, describes us as, as homeless. Actually, it use, uses worse words. It says that, Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were slaves to our sinful nature, that we are children of wrath. Paul writes this in Titus chapter 3. Listen to how he describes our life, our homeless life before Christ. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit. The gift that you and I have received through Christ is infinitely greater than the gift of a new used car. Forgiveness, hope, reconciliation, a right relationship with the creator of the universe, the certainty of a glorious eternity, purpose, resurrection, new life. Friends, it's impossible for us to put a price tag on the magnitude of the gift that we've received through Christ. If you know Jesus as your savior. And as we begin our study in 2 Peter tonight, that's right where Peter begins the foundation of this letter. God's unmerited and undeserved grace. But before we read the first four verses of 2 Peter, that's all we're going to get through uh, tonight, it's important for us to understand a little bit of background on the letter of 2 Peter. Anybody know who wrote 2 Peter? Peter. I heard one of you almost say 2 Peter. That, that actually, <laughs> I would have loved that if you would have shouted that out confidently, but for your sake, it's probably good you didn't. I have no idea who that was. Peter wrote the book of 2 Peter, and if you've spent some time in the New Testament, spent some time in the Gospels, you know a little bit about Peter. You know how his life started. He started as a very poor, uneducated, ordinary fisherman living up north in the Sea of Galilee. But that's when he met Jesus. Maybe you remember the, the uh, clip from The Chosen that Fritz showed a couple weeks ago earlier in the summer when Jesus called Peter by the Sea of Galilee, and literally everything changed. Oh, not another corn pun. Wow. Okay, cool. Everything changed. Nobody else got that? Thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> Everything changed for Peter. He met Jesus. And then he followed Jesus. And for years, he, he lived and breathed Jesus, soaking up everything that he could. Maybe you remember that Peter became one of the leaders among the disciples. It was him and Peter, and uh, it was Peter, James, and John that formed the, the inner three, the, the circle. But Peter was the, the spokesman, the leader. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? It was Peter that spoke up and said, you're, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. But do you remember what happened a couple sentences later in the gospel of Matthew? Peter reprimands Jesus for talking about his coming death by the hand of the religious leaders. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, yo, stop talking like that. And what does Jesus say? He looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Just so you know, that's not a compliment coming from the mouth of Jesus. That's not what you want to be called. Peter goes from the top of the top to the bottom of the valley in just a matter of paragraphs. And then as we get closer to Jesus' death, Jesus predicts that Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. And Peter says, no, I'll go with you even to death. So when they're in the garden and Jesus is being arrested, it's Peter that's brave enough to pull out a sword and he takes a swing 
at Malchus, and all he catches is his ear. It's a good thing Peter didn't sign up to be a soldier because he would not have lasted very long with aim like that. But disillusioned, he still kind of follows Jesus at a distance when he's on trial. But when the servant girl comes to Peter saying, don't, don't, you, don't you know him? I can tell by your accent. As Jesus predicted, Peter denies Jesus, not one, not two, but three times. After the third, he makes eye contact with Jesus, and he weeps bitterly. That's Peter's low. He wasn't sure if he could ever recover from that moment. But after the resurrection, Peter's one of the first to discover the empty tomb. And then in John 21, Jesus restores Peter and calls him to ministry. And a couple weeks later at, at Pentecost, it's Peter, who's the main preacher, who preaches this fiery sermon, and thousands of people get saved. He becomes the leader of the early church. He becomes instrumental in the gospel going forth to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and Acts 15. But then there's Galatians chapter 2. Paul publicly reprimands Peter for acting like a spiritual hypocrite around the Jewish leaders. Peter's life kind of looked like one, two, three steps forward and one step back. It's a roller coaster. Sound familiar? But God used Peter to write scripture. First Peter, second Peter. He also had likely an instrumental hand in the writing of Mark. But second Peter was written towards the end of Peter's life, probably around 65 AD. Backdrop is important. In that time, the persecution of followers of Jesus was at its worst. Nero was the emperor. That was the guy who dipped Christians in tar, set them in his garden, and lit them on fire as lamps. Peter was imprisoned in Rome in AD 65 when he wrote 2 Peter. He died by AD 68. This was the last letter he wrote, the backdrop of Nero's persecution. Who's the recipient? Who received 2 Peter? Well, if you look at the first verse, it doesn't say, does it? Usually, a letter begins with the recipient. But if you are a good detective and you spent time over the next five minutes reading the rest of 2 Peter, you'd find a verse at the beginning, I think it's the beginning of chapter 3, that says this, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Interesting, he alludes to a first letter. If this is 2 Peter, what do you think the first letter is? First Peter. Yeah, nice job. That was really confident. The first letter Peter wrote would have been First Peter. And if you go to First Peter 1 verse 1, Peter identifies his audience. It's the churches in Asia Minor, which are largely Gentile, non-Jewish. So we can assume that Peter's writing to the same audience, a collection of churches in Asia Minor, a largely Gentile audience. So then why does Peter write this letter? Well, we get a lot of clues from the content of Second Peter. There were these false teachers that arose from within the churches in Asia Minor. At first, they looked like strong, legit Christians, but then they started opening their mouths and teaching. And it was clear that they were not legit followers of Christ. They were wolves in sheep clothing. They were trying to lead the people astray. And Peter writes to warn against these false teachers. And they were teaching some pretty dangerous doctrines. They taught that Jesus wasn't coming back. And they taught that there wasn't a coming judgment. That's a top-tier issue, not something to mess with. They taught that to be a Christian, you had to obey all of the law. So Peter writes to combat these 
teachers and encouraging these churches to press on, to persevere. That's our big idea for the whole book is those two words, press on. But this is what we might call a deathbed letter for Peter. It was written towards the end of his life within years, maybe months, I'm not sure, of his death. He knew that his end was coming. He hints at that throughout the book. It's interesting. It's not the only book of its class within the New Testament. If you read a book like 2 Timothy, that's Paul's last will and testament to young Timothy. Maybe you've read it. It's emotional and affectionate, and Paul's passing the baton to his mentee in the faith. And if you think about it too long, you might even shed a tear. And then we get to 2 Peter, and it is nothing like 2 Timothy. Peter is bombastic. It's this hellfire and brimstone sort of preaching. It's courageous and over the top. But would we expect anything else from a guy like Peter after hearing the narrative of his life? (laughs) Probably not. But this is not an easy book for us to understand. Second Peter is academically challenging. We're going to dive into Greek and sentence structure just so we can understand what's going on. So on Monday nights, every time you walk in the door, if you have glasses, you're just going to have to go like this. Just put those nerd glasses on, slide them up your nose, and you'll be set. (laughs) But even before you walk in the door on Monday nights during the study, here's another thing that would help. On Sundays, we post the text that we're going through on Instagram and on Facebook. It'd be really a wise idea to read through that ahead of time to come in on Monday nights already knowing what we're going to talk about, already having read the text, so that you can begin thinking about it, chewing on it. It's going to make our time on Monday nights a lot more profitable. I encourage you to do that. So not only is 2 Peter hard for us to understand academically, it's also hard for us to understand, to apply to our life. There's a lot of hard sayings in 2 Peter. It is not an easy book to put into practice. Peter raises the bar. So I hope that you're up for a challenge, both academically and spiritually, as we spend some time in 2 Peter. Let's read the first four verses together. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Why don't we go ahead and pause there and just talk about a couple of the concepts in the verse. He says in that second line, to those who've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Have obtained is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the Greek word lakchano. And it has this concept of receiving a gift that just falls into your lap. Not earning it, not deserving it, plop, it's just there. That's Doug in the video we just watched. That's the Greek word that we have for have obtained. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, the gift just appears. But what does Peter say is the gift that we've obtained? What does it say? You've obtained a a faith. The gift we've obtained is even better than a car, right? It's it's the gift of, of faith. It's a word, it's maybe the most important word for us to understand in the whole New Testament. Hebrews 11.1 says faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty or the conviction of things unseen. Maybe a synonym of the word faith is is trust. And we throw those words around a lot in our culture today, don't we? Our Our world uses the word faith or trust in very broad ways. Belief, 
the kind of faith the Bible's talking about is not the, oh, I believe in God, or the often used phrase, in God we trust. No, the faith that the Bible talks about is simple and specific. Believing that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. Believing that when he rose from the dead on the third day, he was our substitute. Each of us must have faith in Christ. Not faith about Christ, not faith in what Jesus taught. No, this is a specific faith, believing that when Jesus died, when he rose, that he paid the price of our sin on the cross. But Peter takes it a step farther, doesn't he? He says that faith in Christ is a gift. Did you catch that? The ability to believe in Jesus by faith is a gift from God that's fallen into our lap by absolutely nothing that we've done. And Peter says that this faith is of equal standing with ours. It's a term that means civic equality. It's used in government sort of circles, judicial circles. Here's what Peter's saying in layman's term. Some people think that, you know, there's a common faith and then Peter and the apostles have a a special faith. Some people think that Peter's flying in first class because he's an apostle. And then the rest of us ordinary people and young adults, we're flying frontier next to the lavatory. But that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying that those he's writing this letter to, and those of us here tonight who know Jesus as our Savior, our faith, the gift that we've given from God, is of equal standing as his. There's not two classes of faith or classes of Christians. But how have we obtained this gift? Well, he says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was perfectly righteous in thought and attitude and action, living the life that we needed to live, but never could have dreamt of living. And we receive this gift of faith because of the righteousness of Jesus on our behalf. This gift of faith that we receive, it's not based on anything that we've done. God didn't look into the future and foresee those who would follow him and then retroactively give them the gift of faith. That would make salvation contingent on us God didn't choose those who are already living with the highest level of holiness and and then decide to choose them. No, Jesus lived a flawlessly righteous life, the life we needed to live, but never could have dreamt of living and then went to the cross in our place. I hope that we understand how foundational this is. God calls us based on his purpose, not based on our righteousness or anything that we've done. And if we know Christ, our faith is of equal standing before God. There's not a special class of Christians. As many have said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Look at verse 3. His, that's Jesus, Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In the Greek, you heard me emphasize it in English, the word all things is the Greek word panta. It's actually in a place of prominence in the sentence, right after an introductory word that we don't even translate, the next word is panta. In other words, it's the most important word in the sentence. God has given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. Those two words, life and godliness, come together to form one idea. It could be translated uh, a godly life. And he has granted is the same concept as have obtained in the previous verse. This idea of a gift that's fallen into our lap by no fault of our own. God has given us everything that we need to live a godly life. 
from the moment of conversion, when you become a Christian, to the moment that God calls a Christian home to glory, we have everything that we need to follow him with faithfulness. And this comes through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Knowledge. It's another one of God's precious gifts to us because when we become a Christian at the moment of conversion, he removes the blinders from our eyes. We can see everything in a new way. We understand our sin. We understand our Savior. Yes, we still have a lot of learning to do, but the veil has been lifted. And this is not a knowledge that we can somehow conjure up on our own by study and academic research. It's why some scholars can spend decades studying, studying the New Testament, but reject all of it. This knowledge, this removing the veil from our eyes is a gift from God. Look at the last line of verse 3, of him who called us to, I think it should be translated by, who called us by his own glory and excellence. That word calling is confusing, but we're going to focus in on that word for just a couple of minutes. Tonight, we need to consider our calling. That's our first principle tonight. Consider your calling. What does that word mean? When we use the word calling, does that mean that Jesus is going to grab his iPhone and give us a call? No, I I don't think so. We often use the word calling to talk about the moment of conversion, the moment when we believe and trust in Jesus as our Savior. And that call from Jesus, it's not something that we can resist. When Jesus calls, we won't say no. Jesus' call on our life, it's also effective. There's not this class of people who Jesus has called that aren't saved. Everyone who's called believes. Jesus' call is also unconditional. It's not based on anything that we've done. He doesn't base his call on those who will choose him someday. God makes the first move. We don't choose God first. He chooses us and we respond with faith and with repentance. But I can only imagine that when Peter wrote about Jesus' call in his life, what do you think he thought of? I think he thought back to Luke chapter 5 when Jesus called Peter by the Sea of Galilee. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read that account because I think there's some things that we can learn about Jesus' call on our life when we, when we picture and we think about Jesus' call on Peter's life. Luke 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. They were just in a different region, different name. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Simon is Peter, he asked him to put out a little bit from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. At this point, uh, Peter had already heard an entire sermon, right? And Simon Peter answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, and it began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. 
And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Hmm. That's Peter's call. And it changed his life forever. Because he didn't turn back. He followed Jesus. Certainly, if you know Christ, your call doesn't look like this. But maybe there's some similarities to Peter where you can identify the moment when Jesus called you from darkness to life. Tonight, if you're in a small group with Jim and Susan Masterly, make sure to ask Jim about the story when Jesus called him. It's powerful, and he can identify the moment. But there's others of us. I would fall into this category where we can't identify the moment. I know the season of time in my life when Jesus called me, but I couldn't tell you the day, the minute, the hour. I know that I believe, I know that I, I trust Jesus as my Savior, but I couldn't find the exact moment. But for either, whichever camp you fall in, or maybe you're here tonight and you say, I, I haven't crossed the line yet. I think there's something that all of us can learn from Peter's call. Here's the first. Peter started as a skeptic. You can almost, you can put that first one up if you'd like. Peter started as a skeptic. It's almost as if he didn't want to obey Jesus' command. You can almost hear the teenage-like response from Peter's mouth, can't you? Seriously? Jesus, I'm the expert fisherman here. I was the one that was up all night fishing. We didn't catch a single fish. And now you're going to tell me to go fishing? You don't know what you're talking about. You're just a rabbi. He was a skeptic. He didn't want to believe. Hmm. Maybe there's moments we've been skeptical too. You mean you believe this is actually God's inspired word? Like God wrote this? Isn't that just a collection of, of sayings? Wait, you believe that heaven and hell are are literal places? I thought that was something that was just made up. Wait, you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? I thought that was just legend. Wait, you actually follow God's ethical standard? I thought that was just a suggestion. Wait, you believe that Jesus can take the mess that I've made of my life and transform it? I think there's moments that we've been skeptical too. Maybe that's you tonight. Yes, Peter was skeptical, but what did he do? He gave Jesus a chance, didn't he? Jesus said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. This is mustard seed-sized faith. But I would rather have weak faith in a strong rope than strong faith in a weak rope, wouldn't you? It's not necessarily about the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith. And Peter gave Jesus a chance. And then Peter encountered Jesus. That's the second aspect, isn't it? Peter encountered Jesus. It was powerful. It was a miracle. It changed his life. He'd never seen anything like it. And he wondered, could this guy be the Messiah? 
Now, you and I are not going to encounter Jesus in the same way Peter did. We are not going to find ourselves on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus telling us to get into our boat and go fishing. That's not going to happen. But we can still encounter the real Jesus. It happens every time we open the Gospels, every time we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And if you are looking to encounter Jesus, it's time to dig into Scripture with the goal of knowing Jesus. Open up one of the Gospels with the desire to discover Jesus. So Peter started as a skeptic, and then he encountered Jesus, but he responded with humility, didn't he? That's our third. He responded with humility. Did you hear what Peter said the moment he got out of the water? Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a what? A sinful man. It takes someone with quite a past for that to be the first thing that they say to Jesus. He didn't even say, thank you for the fish. He didn't say, wow, that was cool. No, he said, leave, I'm a sinner. You don't know who you're talking to. We don't know a lot about Peter's past, do we? The Bible does not tell us. But based on what we know of him in the present, after he met Jesus, I can only imagine how colorful his BC before Christ days were. He was a brawler, for sure. But then he met Jesus. But he responded with humility. He says, Jesus, depart from me, I'm a sinner. Do you think that Jesus cared about Peter's past? Absolutely, he cared. Jesus cared enough about Peter's past and present that he died for Peter's past. But Peter thought his past, his sin, his junk, his mistakes, he thought those were an obstacle to Jesus calling Peter. He thought they were going to get in the way. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Don't be afraid. He pushes through Peter's objection. He pushes through Peter's plea to leave. And Jesus says, Peter, don't be afraid. Man, I wonder if some of you have tried to push Jesus away when he tried to call you because of your past, because of your present. You've asked the question, oh man, if all of these people here tonight, if they knew what I've done, if they, if they knew my past, they would never let me back in the building. I'm too far gone. Jesus couldn't love me. He couldn't forgive me. Jesus, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. Jesus says the same thing to you. Don't be afraid. Jesus cares about your past enough to die for it and to offer forgiveness. No one's too far gone for the grace of Jesus. In that moment, for Peter, transformed his life. The call is subtle, but Jesus says, don't be afraid, Peter, from now on, you'll be catching men. Peter responded with full surrender. His faith led to full surrender. That's our fourth aspect. I want us to remember Peter's call. <laughs> I just think it's kind of funny. Like Jesus made a fishing pun. Did you catch that? So don't make fun of me for using a corn pun if Jesus is going to use fishing puns, okay? But it transformed his life. Peter left everything. He left his boat. He left his net. He left everything behind and he followed Jesus. Repentance. Jesus 
was the driver, and he was going wherever Jesus led. Changed his life. Peter believed in Jesus, turned, and followed. I think there's a lot that each one of us can learn from the call in Peter's life. Has Jesus called you? Maybe he's calling you tonight. If he is, then pick up the phone and say yes to Jesus. Don't delay making the most important decision of your life. He's asking, will you follow me? He's asking, will you open your heart to me? He's asking, will you receive the free gift of salvation that I have to offer? We say yes to Jesus' call in the same way Peter did, with faith, believing that Jesus is our Savior. And with Holy Spirit-empowered repentance, turning away from that old way of life and following Jesus. When Peter turned and followed Jesus, did his life look perfect? No, it was a roller coaster. It was like two steps forward and one step back. But he had a whole new trajectory and he had a new master. If you don't know Christ, don't leave tonight without knowing that you know him. And if you do know Christ, if you believe in Jesus as your savior, if you've turned and you've trusted in Jesus, then don't doubt your call. One of the battle tactics of the enemy is to sow seeds of spiritual doubt in our hearts to get us to ask questions like, ah, man, I know that I believe in Jesus, but am I really a Christian? Or maybe it's a deeper question of, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but, but what if I'm not one of those people who's called? If you're asking that question tonight, here's how I would respond. If you're wondering, well, if you believe in Jesus, you've turned and you trust in him, and you see that Peter-like growth over time in your life, that's you, and you're wondering, I'm, 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 am I called? My answer would be yes, absolutely. Of course you're called because you're demonstrating a softness of heart that is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you know Christ, then we can take comfort in Peter's main thought in verse three. He said, we have everything that we need for a life of godliness and holiness. Just consider the power of that statement. We're not looking for some hidden knowledge or a, a secret book. We're not waiting for some special gift. Jesus isn't setting us up to fail. There's not this contingent of us and young adults that are going to fall off the cliff. No, that's not how it works. We've received everything that we need to know God and understand salvation. We have all the tools in our tool belt that we need to live a godly life. God's called us to something he'll equip us to fulfill. It's an incredible promise. And as Peter continues, not only does he look to the past, the grace that we have at the cross, but he also looks to the future. Look at verse 4. Where Peter writes this. By which, which is his glory and excellence, he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. He doesn't want us to miss how great the promises are. Precious and very great, they're exceedingly great promises that he's given us in Christ. We know what a promise is. It's something that's assured, that's not yet fulfilled. It's a future guarantee. And I'm sure we can think of individuals in our life that have made us empty promises, whether that's a politician or a parent. But Jesus never makes empty promises. 
Every promise he's made has already been fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the future. So then what promise is Peter talking about? Well, it's a thread that he weaves throughout the book, and he comes back to it in chapter uh, 3. It says this in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. For Peter, the idea of promise is tied up in the second coming, Jesus' glorious return coming to judge the wicked and rescue the righteous, the promise that those who know Christ will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. It's important for us to ponder his promises, and that's our final principle tonight, ponder his promises. It's no secret that living in our world is not always easy. Pressing on is hard. We live in a sinful and a broken world. Pondering his promise is a way for us to keep the perspective that God desires of us. And in the last part of verse 4, he uncovers a couple other aspects of his promise. He says that we'll become partakers of the divine nature. It's an interesting phrase. Does that mean that we're also going to become God-like in some like Greek mythological sort of way? No, that's not what Peter's saying. He's saying that we're going to have a divine connection. That's already started, hasn't it? That if you know Christ as your Savior, the moment you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came and dwelled, tabernacled in your heart. We already have a divine connection, but it's a connection that's not fully realized yet because the day is coming in eternity when we'll be able to behold all of God's glory and live, when the presence of God will be our literal light. We're not going to need a flashlight. We're not going to need the sun because the glory of God will be our light. When we'll receive a new glorified body that'll resemble Jesus' glorified body and we'll be in the presence of Christ forever, then we will have a divine connection. Yes, it started today through the indwelt Holy Spirit but it's not fully realized yet. But look at the last part of verse four. Having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to that. Escaping the corruption of the world because the corruption of the world is not just out there. It's in here, isn't it? When was the last time you thought, did I really just have that thought again? Did I really just feel that pull towards that same sin again? Are you kidding me? I thought it was better than this. I'm excited for the day when that pull is not going to be there anymore, when we're not going to have to fight that temptation anymore. And has that promise already begun? Yeah. We're beginning to look more and more like Jesus as we grow. But when we get to heaven, what a day that will be when we're not fighting that spiritual battle anymore and we're not confronted with the brokenness of sin every day. I love this passage because as you look through this, look at all of the things that God does. He gives faith as a gift through the righteousness of Christ who died in our place and rose in our place. His divine power has given us everything we need to live a holy life. He's called us by his glory and excellence He gave us precious and very great promises. Those are all things that God does. What do you and I do in this passage? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. If anyone leaves here tonight and thinks that somehow we can earn a right relationship with God because of what we do, because of good behavior, 
because of Bible reading, because of confirmation, because of getting baptized, because of going to church, because of just being a good person. If anyone thinks that we can earn a right relationship with God because of our resume, I have failed. In terms of our salvation, the only thing that you and I bring to the table is the sin that made it necessary. We respond to God's grace with faith. Let me pray. Father, what a powerful foundation that you've provided for us in 2 Peter. It's always good to think about your grace in our life that should always lead us to this, this feeling of humility. Why us? Why us? Maybe some here tonight feel like Peter saying, Jesus, I'm not good enough. But we know that's the point because none of us are. And that you care about our past enough to forgive it and pay our debt in full on the cross. So if there's anyone here tonight that has not believed in Jesus as their Savior, may tonight be the night when they say yes to Jesus. And for those here tonight that might be insecure, that there might be a seed of doubt that the enemy is placing in their mind, may a text like this just provide a confident assurance that they're your child and that they belong to you. And as we kick off a new year and new small groups, may you use our young adult life groups as a tool for us to grow not just deeper with one another, but ultimately deeper with you. And as we look back in May at the last year, may we see the amazing things that you've done to this young adult family. In Jesus' name.